Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and it is my pleasure to host the Emerge Australia Imagine podcast series in which we speak to people impacted and associated with MECFS and long COVID. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present, emerging and people listening today. So John Lennon's iconic Imagine is the theme of our podcast series. I just want you for a moment to imagine a world where there is no discrimination, no stigma, no racism, which is very apt at this time in the world's history, a world where the voices of those suffering invisibly in silence are heard, are seen and are addressed, and a world where we have a cure for MECFS or at the very least a biomarker diagnostic test or, let alone, updated clinical guidelines. Imagine all the people. So today, I'm delighted to welcome Alex Lubansky to our podcast series. So Dr. Alex Lubansky is a chemical engineer with a PhD of all things in ice cream. He's a father of two teenage boys He was an engineering academic in the UK and Australia before starting up a biomedical device company, Hemograph, where he is the chief technical officer. In 2017, Alex suffered an illness which had lingering symptoms such as fatigue, brain fog and pain. Six months later, he was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. From there, with tremendous efforts and support from family and work and great help and advice from the MECFS community, Alex has made many changes to improve his pacing and currently his MECFS is regarded as moderate to mild. Alex, welcome to our Imagine Series podcast. Thanks very much, Anne. So... You know what the first question is going to be, don't you? I just have to ask you, a PhD in ice cream, can you tell us what that means? Because it sounds very yummy. Right. So it's not quite as yummy yummy as it it sounds. So if you ever look at um, at milk or ice cream, you'll see on the side it it says made from pasteurised homogenised milk. And the pasteurisation is where you heat it up to get rid of the nasties. And the homogenization stage is where you um, break up the fat droplets to make them really small. 
And if you get them, get it right, then when you're tasting the ice cream, you'll use words like um, smooth and creamy. If they're too big, you'll use words like batty or buttery. If you're if they're too small, then you don't get the full sort of effect of them, and you'll use words like icy and, grit- and gritty. So my PhD was looking at um, a model system representing that to look at how droplets would break up or deform when they're um, when they're subject to a particular form of, of stre- uh, stress called extensional um, stress, and so that that was kind of the focus of what what I was looking at, and um, you know, sort of within there, it was supported by Nestle, so I got to spend a, a lovely ski season over in um, Switzerland working at Nestle's research labs over in Lausanne, and that was lovely. And um, also, also within there, I, um, for various reasons, I spent a lot of time towards the end of my um, PhD working in um, the lab at in a lab at University of Queensland. So my PhD was based out of Melbourne, where I live. And um, so I would kind of go up, go up to particularly towards the end. I'd go up to Brisbane, um, and I. I was staying at my, my wife's uncle and aunt's place and I'd get up, catch the first bus from when I've woken up, go go into UQ, spend a lot of time um, in the lab doing experiments and mostly catch the last bus home at about 11pm at night. Wow, and um, except, except for the odd couple of days where um, I had something working and it had been tenuous enough that I didn't want to risk it risk moving it so I just worked through worked through the night. Oh, Not something wow. I could do anymore. No, no, that's that that's a huge um time commitment work wise. So uh, a PhD in ice cream um isn't necessarily as um attractive as it might sound to those of us who love ice cream. Next time I eat ice cream I'm gonna think about whether it's creamy or gritty. <laughs> so I've learned something. Thank you for explaining that. So, um, Alex, in your bio, you discuss uh, suffering an illness in 2017 that led to your ultimate diagnosis of MECFS. Can you uh, expand a little bit more about that journey from getting an illness? Um, and um, how difficult it may have been for you to get a diagnosis of yes, MS- I, was a, I was actually on the luck, luckier side, so, um, well, to the extent that anyone is, but um, in the first kind of two weeks of the, of the bug, it was just your classic, I've got a bug. So sorry, I'm going to get a little graphic here. I'm sorry for the other times I'll get a bit graphic, but I'm going to anyway. Um, that, yeah, sort of I was unable to keep food down. I was um, throw, throwing up a lot. And when I wasn't, it was passing through very, very quickly out, out the other end. And, yeah, sort of, and, yeah, associated with that, you know, your classic I've got a butt stuff that I just, you know, you're, you're sick, you're in bed. Yeah. Within about one to two weeks, that had cleared up, and um, you know, I was able to keep food down. wasn't Yeah, you know, sort of 
digestive system was back to back to normal, etc. Except that I was still really, really tired and yes, I got a lot of pain and um was unable to concentrate, was unable to see straight, was unable to um think straight. And so and that just didn't go away. So you know, sort of a few trips to the doctor, numerous blood tests and and all the rest and times times passing and um the doctor I was seeing was actually most mostly pretty good around around it and yeah there was never any disbelief there was never any questioning he did have um a few things where he thought it may have been um there may be depression symptoms um but as far as kind of his some his pathways that related to me um it was most um mostly really um positive positive and he said look actually what you've probably got is chronic fatigue syndrome but we can't diagnose it until six months and it's a diagnosis by exclusion and so kind of over that six um six months i had who knows how how many different tests and scans and and all the rest and at six month mark um he sent me to see a rheumatologist the rheumatologist said um basically you've got chronic fatigue syndrome and um you know this is kind of what ha- what happens with it this is what you should do um some um some of those things were good advice some of those things less so um particularly as things I've learnt subsequently and things that I've tried along along the way um and so at that six six month mark I've had a diagnosis that's right I've got chronic fatigue syndrome this is, and that then meant having a name to it um helped actually seeing the name myalgic encephalomyelitis helped even more but I'll get onto that in a moment and um what that then meant was that it let me do things like pop on to Facebook groups where I can, you know, sort of see other people's journey. It meant that I could have a look at and see, okay, this is what the literature's showing. It also meant that I could do things like um, look up the Wikipedia page and while that um, it wasn't what I needed for me, um, there were people around me who they hear chronic fatigue syndrome and they hear fatigue. Oh, well, you know, he's tired. Everyone's tired. Just push through it. And then you show them the myalgic encephalomyelitis page and they see just how small an aspect of it um, the fatigue is. And they see, oh, crikey, you know, Here's a, li- a list of symptoms. You wouldn't wish one on one of them on anyone, let alone the whole lot. And especially um, seeing the post-exertional mal- malaise, um, things associated with it, and that was really, really important for them to see it. It's really important for me to understand how to manage myself, but it was really important for them to see it because suddenly it tells them, okay, I can't push through it. I can't just try and do something because if I try and do something that just makes things worse 
And so that was kind of um, to sort of the first six months to getting diagnosed. And from there, yeah, sort of having the diagnosis and having um, those supports and seeing what what else works, um, it opened up a whole lot of things that I could try to say, okay, does this work? Someone's tried this, does it work? And the flip side, of course, is that everyone's had um, a mother's best friends, cousins, um, <laughs> whatever, who's who had it, and, he, and they they were cured by doing what doing whatever. I won't go through some of the things that were suggested, um, but it means I can kind of look at that and say, okay, I'll try this or I'll try that and see does does this work? Does that work? The other thing that and having diagnosis enabled me to do was get a mental health care plan. And um, I think it let me have five visits to a psychologist. I think I ended up having having four. And that was purely for me around um, this is a new life. This is, you know, a new reality that I need to get used to and I need to be able to navigate it and yeah sort of growing up and growing up as someone who you know as I said when I was doing my PhD I was working silly hours and yeah things that it's just oh you know I've got one one more thing to do I'll just stay and work a little bit longer and that's not a mindset that I can actually afford to stay with because if I do that that means that I'm looking at making things worse and worse and worse and so having that, um, just that help to come to grips with, okay, this is a new reality. This is what um, this is what I need to do now. This is how I need to approach things was really, really helpful. And the thing that made the most difference for me and ongoing and we're now, what, six years later, was when psychologists basically worked with me to reframe things as not... I wish I could do this, but I'd like to be able to do this, but I know that if I do that, it will have this impact on me, and so instead I will do. And that framing has been really helpful coming to grips with it, with everything, and every time there's a new thing I'd like to do and there's lots of things I'd love to do, um, you know, I, ha- I have that to fall back on to say, okay, I can't do this but what can I do that's yeah, yeah that, that's really really interesting um uh, first of all the support that you've been able to get by going and getting some psychological assistance to cope with what would be the grief and loss that everybody with MECFS experiences when you can no longer do things in your life that or second nature to you, like working, like doing things around the house, like, you know, just parenting and 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 what would be, you know, tasks that the rest of us take for granted. When you lose the ability to do those, it, it can actually spiral you into feeling pretty low. But what it sounds to me um, that has happened with you, which I think is a really important area, for our listeners is that by reframing, uh, you have been given some control back because you have a choice as to what you will do 
um, when you can't do those things that you've always done. Would that resonate with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, that's, um, and at, at the, yeah, sort of the time I got sick, you know, sort of my kids were, you know, sort of around the sort of seven to nine age, age mark and, you know, they're now teenagers and you think about what changes they have going through, um, you know, sort of from that age to um, to being teenagers now, there's so many things that um, my dad, me at that age, I would have loved to have been able to support um, support them and to work with them and help them and, you know, that, um, you know, that I haven't, but I've been able to find other ways that I can be an involved and engaged father. And, um, yeah, sort of even things like before I got sick, I used to love um, cooking with them. And I know no one's going to believe me on this, but I even kind of miss doing the dishes. Um, But, yeah, sort of knowing that, I couldn't, yeah, sort of reliably cook. What happened was that it meant that I kind of had to accelerate, help, um, yeah, sort of getting them to be able to cook with me supervising, and then, um, and then from there, getting them to be able to cook and do a whole lot of house houseworky things that, yeah, sort of. They needed to be able to do a lot earlier than otherwise otherwise they might. And we're now at the point that um, my kids cook dinner virtually every night. Um, one one of my kids cooks because we've got we've got to eat, and the other just loves it. So you know, so I've got one um, one one of my boys will come come home from cricket training be told uh, um someone's got to do something with dinner and he whips up um an eggplant parmigiana or um yeah th- things like that and so you know i don't know that that would have happened if i um, hadn't got hadn't got sick so um it they're little positives that you have to look for and yeah so th- things like that that have made um that that have kind of at least helped say, okay, here's how I can still be that engaged father and help them and yeah, sort of support support their growth and development, even if I can't do it the way I, I would have really liked it. And yeah. yeah, even little things like um yeah, sort of my my kids, while they're still teenagers, they play a little bit of cricket in the seniors and um the Team, um, the team was short one day and my father-in-law played and I would have really loved to have played but actually even just being able to go and sit in sidelines and watch them um, play was you know, sort of a big and nice thing that meant I'm still actually involved even if you know I would have loved to love to have joined in and played too so yeah, yeah. yeah. no sounds it sounds as if you know you've been able to build into your um, MECFS journey a, a quality of life that has given you the ability to have some choices. Unfortunately, of course, not all of 
our listeners have got many choices because their MECFS is um, probably more developed, um, uh, you know, than than yours is. So um, yeah. it's it's good to hear that you can actually go from feeling very very unwell to having that little extra bit of control in your life that you know gives you those joyous moments with your kids and your families which i'm sure you desperately missed uh when you were yeah. you know in the initial parts of your diagnosis so i'm going to switch a little bit because you contacted me um regarding uh, the NDIS and Bill Shorten, and I'm really interested in your views about what you believe needs to be done uh, as far as, you know, politics are concerned uh, to bring about change in health policy, whether it's um, around the NDIS or disability support pension or... Um, uh, clinical guidelines, what's the best thing you think could happen in Canberra to, to ensure that we get some change? Um, that's it. Um, I'll, I'll kind of start from something that's completely unrealistic and won't happen um, and, then, and then work to more reasonable things. Um, yeah, sort of back, back from there. So um, first, first thing, I'll just kind of take a Bit of a step back into into my life is that um, I'm really lucky that my wife works full time and my job has been really accommodating that I'm able to work the hours I'm able to work and get paid for what I do and um, you know so at the at the moment I'm sitting sitting here in bed while I'm talking to you and just before this I had a meeting with some of my te- my team members um, where I'm still taking it from bed I didn't have the camera on for that and so the upside of that is that I don't I mean yeah it's not it's not that money's not a concern but it's not if I'm not pushing myself if I'm not doing the absolute limits of what's um sort of what what I'm capable of and pushing things harder and harder and harder I'm going to find myself homeless without being able to eat any any of that. And at this at the same point, um, I'm able to get that without having to navigate a, a complex bureaucracy. And so the thing that I would um, absolutely love as what end up being a fairly controversial position is universal basic income. Because that means that takes the lottery out of it. It means that no one's sitting there trying, you know, worried about getting a diagnosis because they need a diagnosis to get benefits and they need benefits because without that they starve. It takes out that stress. It takes out that, um, you know, all, all the effort you have to go to to navigate bureaucracy. And it means it's not a question of, Am I believed? It's not a question of if I get the wrong doctor and the wrong doctor decides they've read the wrong form of guidelines, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And oh, you haven't done 
a graded exercise therapy. And because you haven't done a graded exercise therapy, you haven't ticked this box. So you need to either do something that obviously I spoke about post-exertional malaise. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you haven't done that, that you know is going to make yourself worse, you haven't tried everything. And if you haven't tried everything, yeah, you're getting kicked off this particular thing. You're getting kicked off this particular thing. Here's all the stress and, and all the rest. So um, having a universal basic income means that you get sick, but you're not going to starve. You t- it takes away that particular worry, and so it means that you can actually focus on your health and what you need. And for me, having been able to focus on my health has been so very important. And um, it's yeah, you know, I look at every little change that I've made to my to my life, and there've been a, a lot. Um, even little things like um, I shower at night rather than in the morning because if I don't have the energy to shower i'd miss it and go to bed and if i find the energy to shower then i can go to bed afterwards and and rest and i don't need to worry about okay i've used the energy having a shower and um for listeners who haven't got mxfs i don't know having a shower takes a lot of energy and you don't appreciate it before you get sick and even little things like i use a shower shower stool and all those little things I'm able to think about those because I have the freedom to be able to think about those. And that makes a huge difference to me. And um, in general, I find that if I finish a day with a little bit of energy to spare, I'm a little more functional the next day. If I finish the day worn out, yeah. I'm, in, I'm in bed for a couple, a couple of days. And, you know, and and even from there, it does mean that any given thing that I'm thinking I want to do, so, you know, mentioned earlier, going to watch my kids play sport. If I'm going to do that, then normally I'm actually having, you know, putting aside a day beforehand where I'm going to rest as much as possible to be able to do that. And I'm making sure I don't have anything too much the day after so that I can rest afterwards. So, it may be that one big day or two big days, I'm going to have a few days either side that are just dedicated to what I call active rest. And by active rest, I mean I'm not resting because, oh, you know, I feel like having a rest. I'm resting because that's an active decision to do what my health needs. And all of that, that's a freedom, and that freedom is very much um, based on, you know, the help, um, my wife having a good job, my kids doing all the housework that they're able to do and help, um, all the help we get from family, um, the help we get from friends, you know, sort of taking kids' place and all those sorts of things. And it shouldn't be a lottery. It shouldn't be, well, just because I have all this luck about um, all this support that I'm okay, but someone else isn't, they aren't. And so that's... Where, where I go from that. And I appreciate that's incredibly controversial and, you, and a UBI isn't likely to happen in any anytime soon. Emerge Australia aims to ensure that anyone impacted by MECFS or long COVID has access to support, information and advocacy that empowers them with the knowledge and skills to make their lives more livable. 
we offer support to over half a million Australians who face ME-CFS and long COVID. It's not really that controversial because everybody is at a very different stage in their lives. They've got different levels of um, advantage or disadvantage in their lives. And I guess when you get something like ME-CFS, you've got to deal with it where you are and, and at what stage you are. And unfortunately, um, there are a lot of people who are in quite a disadvantaged situation with MECFS. And I guess from a social justice perspective, um, you know, you ask yourself, well, what could our governments be doing better for people with MECFS to remove some of the barriers that seem to be placed in their way in order to be able to get support to to be at a at a level of quality of life that is tolerable for them with their MECFS and I think that's one of the big issues for for a lot of people yeah ab- absolutely absolutely and um you know even, even things like you know sort of having those in the initial psych, um psychology um, sessions with a psychologist and yeah I think that should be almost kind of um, I won't say mandatory, but you know, kind of every barrier removed um, to doing that. That you know, if you get diagnosed with a chronic illness, you get those sessions purely around learning to cope with your your new normal, and yeah. um, you know, and that's absolutely a, that shouldn't be a controversial policy. That one, um, but I think that that should just be. Absolutely, um, everyone should everyone should have that because, um, you know, it has so many flow on benefits that it would just pay for. As far as policy goes, the return on investment for that would just be, um, you know, huge huge leveraging because you know, yeah, the costs you save later by having someone in a mind space that lets them adapt and helps them be ready to make the changes they need to, to make and actually be at, um, have the skills to say, no, I can't do this because that would have this effect on me. They're really, really important and they have huge health benefits in letting that happen. Um, the, the other thing that and this will take a little bit of imagination on the part of government, so I'm less confident it would happen, um, is one of the things that has been, and particularly early on, was so very, very important to me, is um, so my my wife is an amazing person, and um, when I was diagnosed, she did a huge amount of reading and learning and understanding, and... Um, she was she was able to actually understand, you know, sort of not just the Wikipedia version of what's going on, but yeah, sort of the latest science, including the latest um, evidence, um, especially the stuff showing that yeah, why things like graded exercise therapy are um, discredited, shall we say. And yep. 
Um, and she, and if I if I'd needed to go on the NDIS, she would have been a um, very very well set up to help me, not just yeah, sort of apply for it, but actually identify which systems I'd need and you know which programs are right for me and all those sorts of things. And you know um, that that sort of thing, having having someone and even things like um, so at various points I've gone to see an exercise physiologist and the again the point of the, me going to see an exercise physiologist wasn't you know building up muscles or trying to recover or anything like that. it was about learning how to use my body in a more energy efficient way so that um, so that I can do more for the same amount of energy and obviously if you can do more for the same amount of energy then you can do more. And so she was very insistent when, um, yeah, sort of the first couple of sessions that she'd come along and speak to the um, exercise physiologist to make sure they really understand, yeah, sort of what the evidence says that I can and can't do and all the rest. And she was able to find, I don't know if it's still on Emerge's website, but um, Simone's excellent um, exercise primer. And so she um she was able to read and digest that at a point where I wasn't in any state capable of doing that. And she was able to make sure that the exercise physiologists knew about it. So when I was with um with them at those sessions, I was always safe and always working within the limits. And that didn't mean that I ne- never got it wrong. That didn't mean I never exceeded what I could do or should do. Um, in some levels, I'm occasionally a little competitive for my own good. And so, um, you know, I do want to do that extra rep or I do want to lift that extra, extra weight. And sometimes the I do want to wins out over the I know I shouldn't and I know my body is telling me not to. And so, you know, but I, I would say having a, um, I guess we'll call them pro- program manager person who's actually understands the illness, understands the intricacies and nuances, and can help you find the right the right help, the right programs, the right support. Um, yeah, make sure that you've got um, medical medical staff who can who can actually help you get the best out of yourself, all of that sort of thing, um, that would be a fantastic thing for the government to um, to set up. To properly fund. So I would say... And properly fund, absolutely. I would say, Alex, that what you're actually describing is what Emerge Australia does through our patient support and telehealth service. And, um, uh, you know, we do get some funding for that service, but uh, it's nowhere near it needs to be in order to be able to provide that system navigation that we need and also the allied health support so that people can be supported uh, in whatever their needs are as far as applying for financial assistance, either through the disability support pension or the... uh, National Disability Insurance Scheme. So um, I guess this is a little bit of a call out to say um, 
uh, please look at our pre-budget submission when it comes in. <laughs> um, even actually finding a merge, you know, that was her. So it wouldn't necessarily have occurred to me to think, oh, yeah, no, there'll, there'll be a there'll be a body like Emerge, charity like Emerge that does this. So, you know, sort of finding Emerge, you know, again, that was her. Uh, yeah, that wasn't coming from the doctor. That wasn't coming from the rheumatologist who was prescribed it. Patient, yeah. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. Yeah. So, so um, we're going to have to wrap it up. But before we do, um, I'm wondering if you could um, share some thoughts with our listeners that are impacted by MECFS and, of course, now by long COVID that would potentially give them some hope for the future? What what could you say to our listeners to, to give them some hope? Um, so I guess first thing is if I, if I look at what the, um, what the state of sort of the narrative around medical research for MECFS is now compared to when I first got diagnosed and when I was first looking at it, um, it looks a lot more like it's in the hands of people who are good biochemical, biomedical um, scientists and researchers rather than in the hands of, of psychologists. And there's, I have no problem with psychologists. Um, yeah, I think I've plugged psychology enough through here already. Um, but... You know, speaking as a former academic, I know there's a tendency that um, whenever you're looking at a problem, you're looking at it from within your wheelhouse. So if I'm looking at things at any given problem, I'm looking at it as an, as an engineer and within the skills that I've got. And if you've got a psychologist looking at what they'll do with MECFS, then they're going to start from a perspective of, what are the psychological interventions and what are the psychological diagnoses we can do? If you have it in the um, in the hands of a um, bio, biomedical scientist, then that yeah, sort of obviously they're looking at what biomarkers they can um, they can they can find and how they and what interventions they can give that will actually help change the body for that. So. That's hope, hope number one is that I think now compared to five, six years ago, I think more of the funding is going into the hands of, well, I would say are the right people. Um, and then beyond that, there just seems to be a huge amount of knowledge being built up ar around, around pacing. So... And I, I would say for me, pacing has just made so much difference. Being able to rest when I need to, being able to take little steps that will make this thing easier or that thing easier. And having, you know, sort of been on some of the MECFS Facebook groups for a few years now, they're, they're just these incredible resources of knowledge where people say, I did this and this worked, I did that and that worked. And even little things like, I sit down when I clean my teeth. It makes a huge difference. 
Um, and so all those little things. I, you know, when I'm eating, I prepare this as a food and it's you know, sort of healthy and low energy to make. And so those that those knowledge bases, I would say, should give everyone hope that we're learning, we're learning what, what works. And there's still a huge amount to go, but at least I think we're asking a lot more of the right questions. And if we ask the right questions, we're more likely to get, get the right answers. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Chris, have you got, was there something else you just wanted to say? Um, yeah, so the um, one other little story around that is um, not long outside. I've had COVID once, wouldn't recommend it, it's horrible. Um, and it took me, you know, sort of, it, it took me months to get over it. And um, unfortunately, the funding for the respiratory clinics and long, long COVID clinics are such that by the time you actually get there, yeah, I kind of um, mostly cleared up, but I thought it was worth, still worth going just to see if I could, um, yeah, sort of if they had anything that might help me with the MECFS, even if, yeah, sort of the COVID symptoms had gone. And actually it seemed to end up that a lot more of the knowledge transfer was from me to him rather than him to me because at the end of it he's, because he was asking us what I'm doing and what, and at the end of it he said, oh, you've, you've basically found what it took us X number of patients and um, six months to find. And that's um, hope that there is, yeah, there is that knowledge building up, but also it's a bit sad that that knowledge isn't, isn't already already there. Um, so, yeah, but I think as far as a sign of hope, it's that things are moving in the right direction. There's a lot more knowledge base um, that people can tap into and people can use to learn from. And just the, the other thing that people can take hope in is that, um, yeah, sort of the more, yeah, uh, this will be, this will sound horrible, but yeah, sort of when the ranks of chronic health sufferers expand by, you know, sort of 300,000 or whatever the numbers are with long COVID, that's basically going to more than double people with, you know, so MECFS and related conditions. And it's going to put political pressure that, hey, we need to find the right things. And it'll, um, it will actually have a lot more of a voice that this is what we need and we need to be listened to and we need to um, be respected if we're saying, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm experiencing. When I do this, this has that effect on me that if one person says it, it's e easily ignored. If 500,000 people say it, it's a lot more likely to be listened to. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And what you're saying here is that, you know, the voice of the patient is critical and and, and that voice needs to be heard loud and clear uh, by our policymakers and our politicians because yeah. they're the ones who have the capacity to change health policy, to change practices that will improve health outcomes for Australia's people with MECFS and long COVID. Alex, you've been great to talk to and it's really interesting hearing about your journey and um, and and hearing 
about the experiences that you've had uh, with MECFS and the ama- amazing support you've had from, you know, colleagues and family. It's it's um, really great. And it's also great to hear that you've been able to make, um, you know, small incremental improvements in your quality of life uh, that have meant that your condition is regarded as mild to moderate rather than severe right now. So um, congratulations on getting it to that stage. Um, Alex, thank you for your time and for your willingness to share your personal experiences today, your story and that of others who participate in our podcast series is making a difference and um, we really want to thank you uh, for agreeing to participate today. My, my pleasure. Thank, thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. The Emerge Australia podcast series seeks to speak to people of influence and those whose voices need to be heard. This is a platform where we can together explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. If the content of this or other Emerge Australia podcasts has in any way triggered an emotional response for which you need assistance, feel free to contact Lifeline on 131114, their crisis support and suicide prevention service. You can also go onto the Emerge Australia website where we have listed a range of emergency services. Tune in again for our next interview and don't forget that for more information and to subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter, visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Alex, thank you very much again for coming on our show today and bye for now. You may say that I'm a dreamer But I'm not the only one And I hope someday you'll join